Hey Phil. Hey Laurie. Welcome listeners to Movie Land Season 2 Episode 9. Great to have you along. Yeah, a very exciting episode. A couple more Oscar-worthy films, confirmed Oscar-worthy films. Well, now. as now, and in fact, we're going to do a breakdown of the Oscar nominations ourselves, aren't we? Yeah, something very much look, to look forward to. What other films we're reviewing this week, Laurie? I've gone to see Hacksaw Ridge, Mel Gibson's latest film starring Andrew Garfield. Uh, you have gone to see Lion starring Dev Patel, uh, picked up a load of nominations. I also saw Triple X, Return of Xander Cage. Is that one of the Oscar-nominated films? I think it might be, actually, yeah, Phil. Great. Yeah, we'll okay. cover that when we, when we get to it. And then horror correspondent Benedict Seal is back again this week because he's gone to see M. Night Shyamalan Split, starring James McAvoy. So an interesting mix of films. <laughs> yeah, as interesting as the way you said that, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I'd jazz, jazz up a little bit. Uh, one thing we should uh, say to you guys is the Brewards show. You know, the Oscars are out but the Super Bailey Brewards, or whatever it is we're calling them, the categories are still up for grabs. Yeah, we have had a couple of nominations, but we're looking for listeners to suggest categories which they think that would be interesting to hear. So if you have any crazy ideas, the stupidest hair, the best face, <laughs> I don't know, whatever it might be, <laughs> yeah, that's send, in, send in them in, tweet them in, just has to be a short one. Even if it seems silly to you, do email us in, and hopefully in a few weeks' time you'll be hearing... The rewards ceremony show. And we're show. putting some serious ones in there as well. You know, the stuff that Phil and I, you know, thought the Oscars should have picked up. That kind of yes, thing. Yes, 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 yes. And as ever, please check out patreon.com slash superbabybros if you're interested in supporting our show uh, from as little as a cup of coffee or two cups of coffee a week. And you could even have your own awkward jingle written especially for you. But you don't have to if you don't want to. <laughs> no, if you just want to support us... That's okay too. We'll yeah, happily yeah. have that happen as well. The email address, if you want to get in touch about anything on the show, is superbellybros at gmail.com, at superbellybros on Twitter. And we've got a few of your bits and bobs of correspondence to go through as well. Yep, so chock-a-block episode. Also, check out what we were watching, or you maybe we already have checked it out. Every Friday we release Laurie and I discussing four movies that aren't out on the cinemas, but might be worth a look nonetheless. Quicker reviews with less pressure. Good fun, yeah. All right. Nice and chilled out. Should we get going? Yes. Phil, you're quite a fan of Mel Gibson's films, aren't you? Yeah, I've seen a couple and I've enjoyed him. I think he's an interesting man, an interesting director. I'm not sure what I think of him as a person, but he's definitely interesting. Yeah, he divides people for, you know... Fair, fair enough, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but he is an interesting filmmaker. You saw Apocalypto, in fact, I think. I did see Apocalypto and I thought that was a very intriguing film, unlike any other film I've ever seen. It kind of almost could play out wordlessly yeah. and still have the same impact. He's good with that kind of action and physical drama, isn't he? But then, And then also a film like Passion of the Christ, he deals with super heavy uh, sort of spiritual philosophical issues and yet awful cruelty. And I, it's a very raw film, that one, isn't it? He seems to be a guy who is really interested in showing beautiful ugliness. Oh, interesting way of putting it. Okay, You know what I mean? Yeah. And he, he has an eye, I think, a really visual eye for how to display really uncomfortable things in an engaging way. Well, with all that behind us, listeners, it's perhaps no surprise that Mel Gibson is now Oscar-nominated for directing Hacksaw Ridge. And everything you just said there about beautiful ugliness, uh, uncompromising things that are hard to look at but need to be looked at, that is what this film is about. Hacksaw Ridge is the story of Desmond Doss. Come across this guy, Phil? No, but I do know he's a conscientious objector, isn't he? That's right. He doesn't describe himself as that, and in the film they make a point of this. Andrew Garfield stars as this guy, and he describes himself as a conscientious cooperator. 
So he doesn't think of himself as someone who is refusing to take part in the war because he's set in World War II when the Americans were taking the offensive to Japan after Pearl Harbor. And obviously that involves shooting, involves taking life. He conscientious objectors say, I want nothing to do with war. It's violent. It's awful. It's against whatever principles are, are holding them back. This guy says, my principles won't allow me to commit violence, but that doesn't mean I don't want to help. It doesn't mean I don't want to serve and be involved in the war. So he's a really sort of unique guy. It's a true story uh, about this chap, Desmond. Um, and I don't want to give away. It's annoying because it's a very famous story historically. Well, so I, I happened to Google this film because I was like, when's it going to come out? I want to see it myself. And then the very first line about the Wikipedia exactly. thing or whatever it is on Google just said, this is, a base, this is a true story based on blah, 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 and the events. And I was like, well, that film's ruined. Well, and the thing is, I, I think it probably wouldn't ruin it if you already knew the story of Desmond Doss uh, by the time you watch this film because Mel Gibson's very talented and it is a, a remarkable story. But I probably would recommend to you, don't look up Desmond Doss. Let the film tell the story for you. Is that very much how it was for you? Yeah, I hadn't looked into the real story. I just knew it was a real story. I knew he was a conscientious objector or cooperator, and that's how I went into the film. Yes, right, well, let's lead into a clip. Uh, Desmond Doss is here, a young man, Andrew Garfield, and he's just enlisted to be part of the army. He's leaving behind a beautiful Dorothy Shute, uh, who is his sort of sweetheart, uh, back in his Virginia home. He hasn't seen much of the rest of the world. You might sort of call him a kind of classic country lad, very wide-eyed, even though he's got quite an abusive and difficult home life. His dad, Hugo Weaving, is a veteran of the First World War, buried lots of his friends, is an alcoholic, appears to beat his wife, lots of problems around the house, but he just figures he can't stay put, he has to go. And we're about to see, or hear him, uh, in the training camp, wanting to take part in all this, wanting to offer his services, but his squad mates cannot handle the fact that he won't touch a gun. They think, well, what on earth is this? Why are you here? Do you not realise that in war people use guns? Do you not realise that in war people get hurt? What? Who are you? What are you doing here? So have a listen to Andrew Garfield's Desmond Doss chatting away to Luke Bracey's Smitty Riker, a hard-as-nails sort of squaddy. Ready? Yes. Here we go. So how come you don't fight? Are you think you're better than this? No. What if he was attacked? Oh. Whoa! Say like that. Bible says to turn the other cheek, don't it? Yeah, see, I don't think this is a question of religion, fellas. I think this is cowardice. Plain and simple. That right, Doss? Well, go on. Take a poke! Tell you what, I'm gonna give you a free shot. Huh? Right there. Hit me, Doss. Go on. Let him have it. Go ahead. No? Mm, there you go. Yeah, so is it cowardice or is it principles? I kind of feel like the guy was yelling at me. Maybe I'm really? a bit of a coward. Is that how you think you'd be? <sighs> it's intense, isn't it, war? Yeah. <laughs> well said. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, so much but it is, no, but ser- all, in all seriousness, war sounds crazy. And yeah, is this film crazy? Well, what an interesting concept, listeners. I think even if it wasn't true, this would be a fascinating film to make because in some ways it's very relevant. It's holding up the idea of conviction and belief in the face of an undeniable reality. So this guy, is it a sort of pipe dream and a silly belief that violence is something that shouldn't be engaged with for any reason, even the best of reasons in war? Um, Is that just stupid or should his beliefs be respected? 
is there something valuable about what he believes and the way that he sees the world in accepting people's beliefs does it need to go to this extreme or should we all sort of expect them to just get a grip and it the film is really marvelously put together to enable you to try and understand that kind of dilemma and answer that question yourself and what's been really heartening is that some of the early discussions i've seen people are doing that people are saying oh this guy's an idiot or oh yeah this guy got it really really right it's really dividing people um, the way that this guy was in real life and a lot of that the credit for that discussion has to go to mel gibson because he portrays the early life of desmond doss as andrew garfield who's brilliant by the way in such warmth and with so much character and subtlety that you really feel like you're getting to know this guy in a way that doesn't bash you over the head. It doesn't tell you that this guy's right for believing what he believes. It just shows you the way that he has come to believe that and the many reasons he has for holding on to that belief. I think it's really wonderful. Like his relationship with this nurse, Dorothy Shute, is such a clever little device that Mel Gibson uses. And by the way, that actress is Teresa Palmer, uh, an Australian actress. Um, it's a very clever thing that Mel Gibson does because he uses it to investigate Desmond Doss, but also to sort of hint at what is to come. There was one scene that really stood out to me where he meets Dorothy and he's transfixed by her. He can't take his eyes from her in a slightly awkward way and you figure it's because oh maybe this guy hasn't seen very much of the world like seeing a beautiful girl oh. literally he just stares at her but she <laughs> she finds it quite endearing after a while and he makes kind of awkward comments and on one of their dates he takes her running up to the top of a mountain and nearly refuses to help her climb up some rocks <laughs> because he just kind of but and it, it, you, you don't realize but those scenes which kind of just seem kind of fun and light say something about his yeah, character Yeah, they really build up his character oh this is a guy who you might even call naive perhaps or just kind of inexperienced because He's not worldly wise and weary in a way mm. and, and trying to manipulate this woman. He just earnestly loves her. And there's a great little moment where she walks across the road and she's on the other side of the road from him and he wants to go and follow her and he's just staring at her again. And he nearly walks into a car and then steps back and goes, oh, and laughs. And then they have a little chat and he does it again. He, he nearly walks into a car again. The car nearly knocks him over twice. And I just thought, how, what a wonderful way of showing that here is someone who is so transfixed by other people he has so much care and concern for them that he doesn't seem to even think about himself. Even when he's had every reason put exactly. right in front so of him to think about himself. Most people, yeah, would stop and look both ways and worry about the cars. This guy is so in love with this woman that he walks into the middle of like traffic and, and is startled. Twice. To exactly, twice. So anyway, I've taken quite a long way to say that, but I think Mel Gibson really paints that portrait brilliantly. And I think it magnificently lulls you into a false sense of security for maybe half of the film, even when he gets to the training camp and we have scenes like that where his beliefs are called into question, lots of tough things happen. It, it's really nicely portrayed and, and all the focus is always on Desmond Doss, even though the drama is quite real, isn't it? You know, is he going to have to face a court-martial for this decision? Do his superiors hate him so much they're going to try and drum him out of the army? Do his squad mates come to hate him? Is it going to get really dramatic? But it never loses its focus on Desmond Doss. It's really quite impressive. And as a side note here, it's even more impressive for the fact that his drill sergeant is uh, Vince Vaughan. No. I know, right? Yeah, Vince Vaughan, Mr. Wedding Crashers, Mr. Like, Mr. Giant Sleeves. And, but he's, a lot of people criticise his performance. I really quite like him because he's serious, but he's warm at the same time. And he's the perfect guy to put in contrast to Desmond Doss, so that as he comes to know Doss, does his opinion change or whatever. Um, but yeah, sorry, what I'm building up to is that it lulls you so that when these guys get to the Battle of Haxel Ridge, which is a terrifying ridge in Okinawa that they have to ascend so that they can then take out some fortified positions held by the Japanese to advance the US Army's uh, attack on Japan. 
you are blown out of the water by the change of pace from the film. And is it? Is it? Do you think all of this is designed so that that is the case for the audience? It's I entirely so. pa- methodically planned out so that, that when that moment hits, it is powerful and punches you. I think utterly and completely. Like there's there's a warmth and a vividness and a, almost a rosy tinted kind of version of the past going on in uh, Desmond Doss's home life, even with the abusive father Hugo Weaving, who is excellent by the way, really brilliant. Um, and it's all kind of slow and romantic and dreamy and builds you up. The training camp thing, as I said, Vince Vaughn is there. Even though it's tough, there's a, like a little edge of niceness to it and warmth to it. And then all of a sudden, there's, this battle sequence arrives. And for me, I was thrown back, literally in my seat, <laughs> by the pounding of the sub base from the artillery fire. I couldn't breathe for the speed of it, that it all happens, the chaos hit me like I couldn't believe. Um, the way that the camera is placed and the editing just serves to communicate the craziness of this situation. And even the graphic nature of the violence, I think, was very sparingly used, very well used. And not since Saving Private Ryan, probably, has it felt so visceral and awful to me. So, I mean, that is the film which immediately I was thinking, oh, I wonder, that's going to be my reference point, that opening scene, the opening beach scene. What's amazing about that beach scene is even with all the chaos and the craziness and everything like that, actually you get to abs- you absorb so much information about what the situation is in that battle. Is this just craziness and intensity and whoa, whoa, what's going on? Or is this still able to say something and portray something? Are you still able to follow the threads of the narrative in this amidst this chaos? I think so, yeah. I, it, the narrative is very strong. And because you spend time with the squad mates and you get to know Desmond really well, even if you don't recognise their names, you can pick out the people that he's come to know when they're doing the fight. The mission is actually very, very straightforward and clear, so you understand the objectives in the people who are doing the fighting, but it really portrays the nature of this kind of violence as just hideous, basically. And you, you kind of find yourself thinking, yeah, there's a reason why people don't want to be involved in it, even for a good cause. But I, I won't spend too long talking about that. And it, it, I, Instead, what I want to do, unusually, Phil, <laughs> is say what a lot of people have said about the violence here is, oh, it's a gore-fest and, oh, it's almost sort of tasteless the way that it's gloried in all the violence. And then I've heard other people say, oh, it's not quite as sort of intense and brilliant as Saving Private Ryan in its depiction of the war. I think it's neither of those things. I think it, in some ways I think it's better than Saving Private Ryan. Uh, I, I really think it's a, a quite incredible showcase of Mel Gibson's restraint and creativity uh, because there are different angles on that kind of combat that I've seen before. And I think the heart of the people involved in it, even the Japanese troops, comes over very strongly. Like some people have said, oh, it portrays the Japanese as just people to be taken out, basically. And, and people want to tie that to Mel Gibson, given his sort of terrible comments off camera. Yeah. And they want to say, oh, here's a guy who's basically a racist. I didn't think that was true at all. I, in fact, there are moments in the film where he goes out of his way to portray the Japanese as people with a different culture, yes, but in the same situation as everybody else. Mm. And I thought there was there was a lot of a humanistic approach to, to the violence and everything else. So I think it's remarkable. I think it's astonishing. I think the editing, the sound and the direction is all amazing up to that point. And I do think the film has a disappointing dive about two-thirds of the way through so after the sort of initial fighting has died down this is where desmond doss's story really appears properly i'm not going to spoil it for you go and see it but i think mel gibson slightly loses a sense of ruthlessness in his direction and he allows the film to become clouded with sentimentality quite poorly written lines and the themes of the film overcome its depiction of the events wow okay 
and I didn't really like that. So I felt that the final third of the film was quite weak, given how strong and impressive and how careful the first two thirds were. That's interesting because that's that's kind of how I feel about Saving Private Ryan. Really? I think the opening is incredible, the the acting, the performances, everything like that, really, really good. But actually, once it gets into the meat of the film, which is about finding Private Ryan, yeah, I think the film isn't isn't that remarkable. And actually, it's the opening third that really is outstanding about that film i just do you think maybe world war ii is just not really well good yeah, grounds for i wonder a whether film? their director's hands are slightly tied here and by their own will i suspect as well i mean i think they just get caught up in the reality of it but when you're dealing with people who do this kind of stuff you sort of have to do things a certain way because the memory is real and the sacrifice was real. And you want to make heroes out of it people who be, are heroic. It just has to be that way. Sort of if you didn't do that, then people would say, this is like a postmodern cynical look at the war. Do you know what I mean? If you, if you were too negative about it. And, and that's why you end up with films like Apocalypse Now uh, and a lot of films through the Vietnam War, which are so sort of satirical and negative. They're almost a parody. And uh, very bleak, aren't exactly, they? Exactly, yeah, miserable. This film isn't that... Performances are uniformly good. Even Sam Worthington, I liked. Uh, Mr. Avatar. <laughs> I think he's a good actor. Yeah, I think he is good. I think he's had a bad rap and he's had some bad roles, but he's good here. He's the captain of the squad. I think Vince Vaughn is pretty good. A lot of people are criticising him. I think he's great. Uh, I think Teresa Palmer as Dorothy is brilliant. I think Hugo Weaving nearly brought me to tears. I thought he was awesome. I love that what, guy. What, I mean, you, you threw it in as if it was just like, oh, yeah, whatever. Andrew Garfield, great, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The guy's just got nominated for an Oscar. It's weird, though, because I don't think it's an Oscar-worthy performance. I think I think he's great i think he's so talented and i but i just feel like we've got more to see from him I, this, this performance doesn't look like it was a massively challenging performance and i think the final third i it's not his fault but you get bothered by him yeah it's just not it's not quite right here's the thing i want to ask you because i've seen him in silence which other people have been yes, saying yeah, yeah, yeah. oh nominations well he didn't get any silence didn't get anything at all no was, oh no he did nominated for cinematography oh right my mistake but one out of, of what however many categories yeah yeah the, when I was watching that film with Andrew Garfield in, I, I couldn't really forget it was Andrew Garfield. Do you have that feeling when you watch him in this film? Uh, yes and no. I think he disappears enough and his accent is good. I, it's nicely so the camera is glued to him. As I said, for the two-thirds, it's all about Desmond Doss. They want you to try and get under this guy's skin and he portrays all those things really well. He's excellent in flashback scenes in particular, which give him some, you know, quite a lot to do. But for a lot of it, he's just kind of unassuming just happy to be wherever he is and you know i don't know phil is that hard to act honestly i don't know i've never really had to do it but he's certainly not bad he's he, he leads the film well one other negative thing i have to add in to that final third is that i think throughout the music is poor it's interesting coming off the back of jackie last week which had a oh, astonishing score by me yeah, yeah we know about yeah, 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 yeah. you <laughs> uh this is rupert gregson williams does that ring bell to you no, of course yes, it come doesn't. Yes, come on, come on, it does. Harry Gregson-Williams, Phil. Harry Gregson-Williams is the guy who did the music for Chronicles of Narnia. He was involved in the music for Shrek. He's a big name. You will, have, you will have heard a lot of his scores. You will have liked a lot of his scores. He's kind of part of this Hans Zimmer compositional collective group as well. And Rupert Gregson-Williams, I think, is his brother. And I guessed, actually, before uh, I saw the name appear, I thought, now this is really sounding very similar to Harry Gregson-Williams. The problem is, it's similar. It just lacks inspiration. So... The tone is a bit drippy. It's a bit too sentimental. It's laying it on rather thick. Uh, not necessarily a problem in the first two thirds because it, it, you know, Mel Gibson treads this fine line between melodrama and caricature and realism, and that kind of score sort of works. But towards the end, it just got a bit annoying. So, not a good score. I think I've said about everything I can say, Phil. What grade is it then? 
A minus, I think. A minus. Oh, good. Even with the the drop at the end. I think the battle sequence is phenomenal. A sort of horrifying and amazing and very cinematic. And I really enjoyed getting to know Desmond Doss in the beginning. The final third is disappointing. It stops it from being brilliant, brilliant. But Are you A minus is still fair. Yeah. Are you surprised that Mel Gibson's managed to get back into? into the noms well it's funny isn't it i think it's one of those ones where people say oh he should have got there ages ago because a lot of his films like passion of the christ Braveheart, apocalypto they're all quite unusual films and they're quite different as well this film is playing to the guy's strengths it's got a spiritual element it's got you know the brutality of things going on it's really in his ballpark i just think for a director to be nominated for an oscar that final third should have been tightened up there you go. If you agree with Laurie, <laughs> do email in. I'm sure there will be people with opinions on this film, if it is as you say. Yeah. So get in touch, superbaileybros at gmail.com, or you can tweet at superbaileybros. Yeah, I'd really love to know what you think, and thank you for basically letting me do a series of monologues there, Phil. Well, no, I was just interested. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, I'd like to listen. <laughs> oh, how lovely. Would you like me to listen more? Is that what you're trying to no, say? No, no, no. <laughs> Sometimes you save my bum. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how it goes in the next review. Okay, listeners, I'm going to do something a bit unusual here. Laurie probably won't like this. Uh-oh. If you have any in any sort of feeling that you want to see Lion at all, and you think, oh, I've seen Tracer, I like that look of that movie, go see it, go see it, have a great time, go see it. I don't want to be the reason why you don't see this film if you are interested in this film. Having said that, <laughs> I need to lay out exactly how I felt going into this movie. I think it's important I do, because Laura and I had this discussion. We always have this discussion every single week. Oh, which films do you see? We try and make sure we get all the co- things covered. And I distinctly remember sitting in Laurie's living room being like, oh, I, I don't want to see Lion. It looks, it looks so stupid. And you did I actually just, say that, didn't you? And yeah. I just know exactly what it's going to be. And, I, and for whatever reason, man, I have this film instinct in me and... I, I think I have even talked about this on the podcast before. I have this instinct about films, about particularly not about whether or not they're good or bad, but about what I will feel about them. And I feel I knew exactly what I was going to feel about this film. And I'm going to give you one last chance to really go <laughs> so see this film. You're letting very thick. Really go see this film if you want to. I don't want to be the reason you don't see this film. In fact, let's play the clip now because it's not really a clip. It's just a trailer and it sets up the plot pretty well. Let's uh, start with where you're from. Calcutta. Which part? I'm adopted. I'm not really Indian. I'm starting to remember. Sorry. That beautiful boy. A life I'd forgotten. Are you okay? I had another family. What happened? I was lost. I have to find my way back home. How long were you on the train? A couple of days. A couple of days. It would take a lifetime to search all the stations in India. Do you have any idea what it's like? How every day my real brother screams my name. I always thought that I could keep this family together. What if you do find home and they're not even there? And you just keep searching? I don't have a choice. Dev Patel's quite a handsome dude, isn't he? I've not, you know, not thought that before, but he's, he seems he's got a bit of charisma going on. He's grown out the hair, and I have to say one thing about this film. I was jealous of his hair the whole time. I'm going to say this film is exactly what I thought it would be, right. and that doesn't mean it's a bad film. 
but it is exactly what Have I you ever heard the be. thing? I think this isn't actually the phrase, Phil, but your focus determines your reality. I wonder where is that from again? <laughs> is that the Matrix or something? something? like that. But all I mean is that a self-fulfilling prophecy, basically. So if you go in thinking, I know what this is, then it probably will just, you know, it will be that a little bit, right? Well, I wonder if it's going to ring bells for you, Laurie, because this is based on a true story, first okay. of all. It's the true story of this kid called Saru. You might have heard his name yelled out a couple of times in yeah. the trailer. He is this guy who um, got lost on a train. He was with his brother and for whatever reason they got separated and it was one of these massive passenger trains which goes right across the country and he gets lost and then eventually he gets adopted by an Australian couple. And Nicole he goes, Kidman? Nicole Kidman and Faramir. Can't remember oh, the actor's really? name. Okay, yeah. right, yeah, he yeah, looks yeah. weird, by the way. He's but got anyway, a big nose, hasn't he? He's, very big nose. I couldn't get away from it. He gets adopted by these, this, this Australian couple and he goes to Australia and lives with them and he grows up and... Then you've got him grown up as Dev Patel and he's starting to wonder about his, his family that his, he's never been able to find. He's lost and he, I mean, he's very young when he goes missing. He's sort of four or five years old, so very, very small. And now he's starting to think, oh, I wonder if they're out there. I wonder if they're still looking for me. I wonder if I could find them. He doesn't know. He's from a really small little village and he can't find it. He just, I can't really remember what it's called even and he's just thinking one day maybe I could find it. And then one of his friends tells him about Google Earth. <laughs> Seriously, that's yeah, actually a Yeah, they haven't point. mentioned that in the trailer, have they? It's about Google Earth and this guy... Is it actually... A, no, it's not about Google Earth, is it? It is about Google Earth because he, he, the way he starts dealing with the fact that he wants to find his family is he starts looking for it on Google Earth. And he spends his nights going on Google Earth, looking through these streets, trying to find something. He's trying to find the train station where he got left. To rem- and based on his memories. And he thinks if he can find this train station, he could find his village and maybe he could go and see his mother again and his brother. I mean, if it's a true story, that maybe that's fair enough because he put the real guy must have used Google Earth. I bet. I mean, that's a world changing thing that happened, wasn't it? Yeah. And it's a true story. So <laughs> what do you think is going to happen, Laurie? <laughs> I, I don't want to say. No, well, I'm not going to say it either, but he probably it's a finds true his story, family, Phil, and it's very moving and difficult. This film is exactly what I thought it is, but I want to make emphasis that part of the reason why I didn't like this film is that I actually think it's badly executed. Okay. It's not a bad film overall, and there's some really good performances in it, and the story is moving. It is really... It is, I don't know if you've ever gone on YouTube and watched, like, soldiers coming home and being reunited with their kids. Oh, man. It makes you cry. I like, can't handle that stuff. And this is a film about a guy who's trying to reunite with his family, yeah. and it's based on a true story. Oh. <laughs> so, of course, of course, there's going to be this sort of emotional thing that hits home with audiences, and audiences are going to leave that cinema at the end thinking, oh, man, that was just so moving, and oh, I can't believe... But the thing is, is... That's that's kind of an easy way to access emotions. Do you feel like it's... And you're being... I mean, I know what you're saying here, and this is a deliberately provocative way to put it, but do you feel like it's tricking audiences because the story is just so good? Yeah, basically. I think it's a great story, but it doesn't mean it's a great movie. Yeah. And actually, the most shocking thing about the movie is the fact that... And this is highlighted in the fact that Dev Patel's been nominated as Best Supporting Actor. Dev what Patel... What is that about? He, why, why? He doesn't turn up until the middle of the movie. Oh, so the whole first hour, it's a two hour long movie, first hour is just setting up this kid who's gone missing. It's setting up this the little boy who's very, very cute. I'll give him credit. He's very, very cute. And he's there, saddle, all this sort of stuff. <laughs> it's all in um, uh, Bangladeshi or Punjabi. I can't quite remember the language, but it's not in English. And you've got an hour of these lovely shots of India. And you, I just found myself constantly being like, come on, get, get, I know what this film's about. I've seen the trailer about a bazillion times. Why are we not there yet? Okay. Why are we not dealing with this thing which is actually interesting? The boy getting lost is not as interesting as him reuniting, you mean? Yeah, and, and also dealing with that whole thing. 
Dev Patel should have been right there from the beginning. It should have started with him popping up maybe. out mm. of the sea. That's how he's introduced in the film. He pops up out of the sea. <laughs> like Ursula Andress. Yeah, he's like a, like a surfer guy in <laughs> right. Australia. And he pops up and there's his little lovely face. That's where the movie should have started. And it should have started with him and then introduced all these things, the backstory of him. He even says it in that little, that little clip we played. Oh, I've, I was, I'm from Calcutta. I'm adopted in his little Australian nice accent. accent. That's very good. That's where the movie should have started. And it should have been flashbacks where... He he explains or, or is introducing the audience to what's gone on in his life and why he is the way he is now. But instead, the movie tells you everything that you could possibly know about this kid and then says, oh, now he's dealing with this. It's such a boring way of telling this story. Interesting. It's you, such a boring way of telling Tell me whether you think this, and maybe this is a silly thing to say. Dev Patel starred in Slumdog Millionaire, which is about two uh, young lads making their way through India, dodging things, having tough times. Trying to reunite with someone. Exactly. That's quite similar, and it's a similar setting, and it's Dev Patel. And in that film, he starts off and there are flashbacks. Tell me that you don't think that's why this film is done this way. I genuinely think maybe that is the reason. Do you reason. think that's what it is? Yeah, I mean, it kind of does feel like Slumdog Millionaire too, because it's it's the same actor in a similar sort of scenario where he's kind of separated and it's about a kid who's sort of dealing with a difficult thing. You get to see this kid sleeping on the streets and then weirdly these men start abducting children and you're like, what on earth's going on? It's horrifying. But that is, again, flashing Slumdog back. Millionaire, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so it's really, it's really difficult to... It's the same actor. It's the same actor. <laughs> yeah. What is really frustrating about it is you've even got a character who is perfect to introduce his backstory, which is Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara plays the love interest. And so you've got a perfect person to get to know this guy. She meets this guy who's Australian and then says, oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm adopted and all this sort of stuff. And it, you could so easily introduce this character. And in fact, the second half of the movie is where all the interesting things in this movie are. Because you've got a guy who's got uh, an adopted set of parents who love him dearly and are really caring for him. But Nicole Kidman, who plays his mum, is is obviously going to be hurt by the idea that he's not happy in his life. Yeah, or yeah. He's looking for his parents and he can't escape them. And you've got the contrast as he's got this privileged life of, uh, of Australia, something which is so much more stable and caring i guess than india might be for for a child who's lost yeah yeah and he feels guilty because he's thinking about his brother who's left and who who may be still looking for him yeah and you've got a guy who's so out of his own element and is torn that's where all the themes of the movie become interesting but then if it does it succeed when it tells those parts i mean it does the second half make up for the first half sort of sort of and i'll give the film credit and dev patel is really good in this film i think he does deserve a little uh nod i'm not sure he should win but he does deserve uh something in acknowledgement of his performance because he does a really good job of conveying the turmoil and the pain of never really knowing what where his family is and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. he's haunted by the image of his brother walking along beside him oh, and they, oh. they even show that on camera which is a really nice moment and i just i can write a film or i can i can visualize a film which is so much more engaging and can pull out these themes because because they've spent this first hour of this movie doing something which isn't really needed you already know he's going to get adopted and and, and isn't going to be with his family so why do they spend their time they could spend that time engaging with the themes of the film which is being out of place which is being struggling with the fact that you've got a good life but you're you're constantly you can't escape your mind keeps on wandering back there and the main thing of him looking on google earth they do do that but looking on google earth isn't particularly cinematic no sure and but maybe, you can't may- avoid it if it's the thing yeah and, and and particularly the the light bulb moment shall we yeah, say yeah 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 it's really annoying. Really? Because 
it just it just yeah i'm not gonna go into detail but it bothered me it really bothered me how it was done um but maybe that's how it was so i don't know couple of last two things i'll say and then i'll wrap up because I, I know it probably isn't fun listening to me tear into a movie <laughs> well no you've said lots of positive things about it you just you were bothered by the structure well here are two things which aren't good um the film constantly fades the black in the most annoying way ever <laughs> like even the opening credits it's just image fade to black image fade to black image fade to black it's it's like they they just discovered it on the editing software <laughs> and they're like this is the best it makes it look so dramatic just chill with the bat i don't want to see it <laughs> would you like to see some wipes instead no just normal cuts like it doesn't need to always go to black and it just means that it'd be fine if it was showing this episodic version of his life but it's not it's showing the entirety of his life and then they're fading to black after every little major bit and it's like no stop 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 that so that really bothered me and it's one of the few times where i've ever noticed an edit and a particular a, a transition as well the other thing that really bothered me is the music and maybe you heard a little bit yeah, of a little that bit. in oh my goodness it was the most irritating thing because the film is already emotional it is about somebody reuniting with his lost family mm. and and finding a new family and all sorts of things and blah 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 and the music is just it does that really irritating thing where it's trying to be minimalist and it just gets right on your skin because they play it and it feels so heavy-handed it's very much <laughs> and I, I can't i can't do the music or the melody i can't even remember it but it's just that in out in out oh, in no. out style of music and it just gets so annoying so i wonder annoying. what their inspiration was for that because those scores have been done you know quite successfully the revenant was a little like that i think you know even jackie has a bit of that in and out minimalist approach but maybe it's the piano that really gives the game away yeah it's it, it's so clearly trying to go for emotion when the film doesn't need it it's not helping the movie, it's distracting it. Well, there we go, Phil. I mean, I, I feel... Uh, can I predict your grade? Yeah, you can. I think you're going to give this film a B. I think probably it deserves a B. I'm not going to give it, though. Oh, right. I'm going to say it's a C. I didn't enjoy this Whoa, movie. Oh, that's I way really, lower than I thought. I really wanted... To, I felt like it was wasting my time and then getting cheap emotion out of me. So that's, that's why... That's unusual for an Oscar-nominated film. That is pretty low. It's got six Oscars. I, I can't believe it. I cannot... Nominated and then... I can't believe it, but then I found out Weinstein's involved. So there you oh, go. Oh right, it is. Is he the production guy? Is it the Weinstein, Weinstein company? company? Weinstein okay. company, mm. and that's why Dev Patel's going for supporting actor because they clearly don't think he's got really a chance in the main category, and he can just about justify being a supporting actor. That's interesting. Well, listeners who didn't listen to our um, Oscars thing last year might not know who Harvey Weinstein is. You probably do need to give us a line on that. Having said it, he's one of those names in Hollywood, and he is astoundingly good at getting. Oscar nominations and Oscars for actors and films and it's partly because he's a bit of a bulldog when it comes to the the Oscars game he is one of those names which you wouldn't wouldn't be that surprised he's to hear a powerful chap he found in acceptance mm. speeches well there we go listeners as you're trying to remember Phil's words from the beginning of this review where he implored you all to go and see it anyway <laughs> regardless of what he felt but I think it's a very fair thing Phil your main point being you know, the story's emotional. This film is not very well put together. So technically, it's just not very good. That's your major thing, yeah? Basically, yeah. And I, this is something which I knew my film instincts were going red hot that yeah, I yeah, wasn't yeah, going to yeah, enjoy yeah. this film. And so I feel like everything you, I say, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Well, there we go. Superbellybros at gmail.com or at superbellybros on Twitter. To I'm going to get so many minus ones. Or disagree ones. So with many minus ones. You don't know that. Everyone you don't know hates that. Me. Any bonuses or not? <laughs> Yes, there are loads of bonuses. I, I actually wrote, I wrote loads of bonuses. And this kind of I shows... I never feel so excited. I never have bonuses. This kind of shows the emotion that I was feeling while I was watching this film. Don't, don't do too many mean ones, Phil. Well, I think it's funny. It's funny about me rather than about the film. Okay. One of my notes was, movie sucks. That was it. Yeah. 
Also, before the film started, there was an ad for Ancestry DNA. No. <laughs> yeah, which I think, <laughs> which made me cringe and laugh in equal measure. Like, find out who you're real. That oh, funny. gosh. And lastly, I've never seen this before ever in a movie. It was the buying highlighters scene. Buying highlighters, as in to highlight stuff. Yeah, to right. highlight things because he's doing maps and all this stuff to try and track where he's at. Right. He buys like a big, long, one of those Russian doll highlighter <laughs> things which stack into each other. And oh, it's lovely. just, there's a scene of that just so you know where he got them from. That's Never funny, seen that before. Normally it just cuts to them circling things on, you know, Normally you just assume that on the wall. You know how to get highlighters, but this <laughs> film wanted to make sure, it wanted to say the true story about how he got them. I bet you missed something amazingly nuanced and subtle in that scene, Phil. No. In a way, he's in his own Russian doll situation, no. isn't he? <laughs> what are you talking about? That <laughs> makes know. no sense. I just want to think about anyway, it. Anyway, I'm sure I've bored lots of people. Apologies to those who've loved this film. I don't hate you, but yeah, I'm not a fan of this movie. There we go. The Oscars have been announced. Hooray! Laurie, do you feel excited? I'm so excited, Phil. It's 2017. A new season of the Academy Awards is here. It's totally worth celebrating and being excited about. So let's do that. It's so exciting! Yes. So, Laurie, what's the big stories about the Oscars then? Well, I think the number one story on everyone's lips is La La Land, isn't it? So that's 14 Oscar nominations. That equals a bunch of records that I think you know about. Yeah, Titanic, and it's all about Eve, two of the most nominated films ever, and it's matched it. More interestingly, it's the it's topped Mary Poppins for a number of nominations for a musical. Yeah, which doesn't make sense to me. I have to say, I think there are some surprises in there for the nominations it's received. I don't think Ryan Gosling should have been nominated. Do as, not? No, not the lead. Are you kidding? Lead actor? He's fine, but... He's all singing, all dancing, all charming. Oh, that's the thing, isn't it? That's the thing that puts it there. It's because he's added two new skills to his repertoire with the dancing and the singing, which he could already do as a child actor. And I think, actually, he's, he's on the rise, I think. Ryan Gosling's had a really interesting set of films in the last couple of years. I mean, if you look at things like Place Beyond the Pine, Drive... Even Nice Guys, it's all very different, varied performances. But then The Nice Guys is quite similar to this. I mean, he's he's playing a goof in The Nice Guys, but he showcased his comedy. And uh, when you look at who else is in that category, Casey Affleck sounds like he's got a fair chance. And Denzel Washington in Fences, I haven't seen yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was great. Interestingly that he didn't get uh, a nomination for direction just acting, even though he directed that film and adapted yeah, yeah, yeah. it and all that sort of stuff. Well, in terms of La La Land, any others that really surprise you? I mean, Emma Stone is there as the leading lady. I mean, basically, the whole of Hollywood seems to be in love with this film. Uh, there's so many five-star reviews of this film, always splattered on every single image you ever see of La La Land. So it doesn't really surprise me at all. I feel like almost Hollywood wants it to be the sensation that it was, that it is, because that's exciting for them, isn't it? It's exciting to have a, a film which is the best and might be the best. That's good for the Oscars, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess bringing back some old-school approaches as well. I mean, cinematography is nominated, which makes sense to me. I thought it did look good, and it was kind of old-fashioned. I think the thing that we both would agree on is that it does not deserve a sound-mixing Oscar. No, I thought it was awful. And in, in fact, I don't think I'm the only one. I think quite a few people have struggled to remember any of the lyrics or, or even be able to hear them. So yeah, during the film. Why on earth is that getting that? I mean, the music was well-mixed, I guess. Well, but no, that's part of it, isn't it? That's part of the music side. I disagree. Do you, do you think overall, Phil, just generally, that acclaim, do you think La La Land deserves all this praise and hype? It's a tricky one because I think La La Land is one of those movies which, if you don't see it coming, I think it could really dazzle you. And I think it really could wow people. And I could see people going in blind and then thinking, wow, what on earth did I just see? Because it hits you right in the face with the sound and, and, and music and performances and charm. But I think there's going to be lots of people and lots of people in the general public, I think, 
who are hearing all this acclaim, all this attention, and then they'll go see it, and I think, what? What's all the fuss about? I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a very weird film to judge. Slightly overhyped. Perhaps. I like the fact that this is a film that's been made. I think that's a good thing, and it's worth celebrating. Do I think it's the best film ever? No, but would it be the worst best film ever? No. No, that's definitely true. There's another film here that I was really surprised to see raking nominations, and I think you're going to disagree with me, Phil, is Arrival. I thought that shouldn't be on any of these lists. Oh, no, you cynic, man. I think it's a bit of a surprise that it's made it onto them, but I think that's good. I think David Villeneuve has done a good job with this film, and I think he's taken people by surprise. I think, a bit like La La Land, people went in not really expecting the film that it was. I just think it's a real indicator that trends drive this as much as sort of history does because it's in there for cinematography and one of the things I most disliked about Arrival was its cinematography. I got really really annoyed by the handheld camera and I got really annoyed by the endless uh, sort of soft focus and really delicate depth of field stuff that was going on. I thought if they just played it a bit straighter and a bit plainer, then I'd have enjoyed the film more. But I understand why they've done it. And this is why I say it's a trend thing, because it's a style of filmmaking that is instantly associated with something that is very dramatic and meaningful. I liked the way it was shot and I liked the cinematography. I think it deserves it. I really do. I mean, I was very open and honest about how much I loved that film. Uh, maybe just it's not your film. Well, why is Amy Adams not nominated for Leading Lady then? That is the big question. She is able to get the nominations, it seems, very easily. She's had four, I think, or five, and never won one. And yet this film has made it to the best film category and also best director. And the director himself, David Villeneuve, has said the soul of the film is Amy Adams. Mm. She is, and I kind of agree with him, it, it all hinges on her performance, doesn't it? So if the film is so successful, why on earth is she not getting any plaudits whatsoever? I think the more shocking thing is that Meryl Streep giving a good speech at the Golden Globe seems to have ousted her. Now, that's, I mean, that's more cynical than what I said, Phil. I mean, you're suggesting that something that had nothing to do with her performance in Florence Foster Jenkins got her that nomination. You don't think it has anything to play? I'm not saying saying she doesn't deserve a nomination. I'm saying, is that the reason she got one? Well, who who can say, Phil? I can't, I don't know. I think she's really good in Florence Foster Jenkins. If anything, I would say it's more likely that what you just said about Hollywood wanting to nominate La La Land and for it to be the best and everything else, there's a sort of Hollywood needs to invest in its big stars, doesn't it? And including films. Meryl Streep is a huge star. She's been nominated loads of times. 20 Everyone times. Says, this is the 20th nomination, I think. Well, exactly. I th- it might be more to do with that than a speech she made. But I, I don't, yeah, I hope it's because they thought she was good. I thought she was great. I said that. I was so pleased to see Florence Foster Jenkins appear on there at all. I think that's been totally underrated. But I think it's it's fair to say that there's kind of a weird double thing with the Oscars. There's a lot of chat around it and there's a lot of people, oh, people are saying this, people are saying that. And so anytime that it doesn't match what people are whispering about performances, it's a bit of a shock. And nobody was really whispering about Meryl Streep in this film. And it was kind of like, oh, maybe she'll get the nomination. But the fact that Amy Adams didn't, uh, well, I think someone I else, think people feel like it's a bit of a snub. Someone else who didn't, of course, Aaron Taylor-Johnson in Nocturnal Animals. I wasn't surprised that he wasn't nominated based purely on Nocturnal Animals itself, but it is unusual for someone to win a Golden Globe and then not even get nominated. And then have his co-star, Michael Shannon, yes. get the nomination instead. 
That's really bizarre to me because this is if you've seen Nocturnal Animals and Hell or High Water, then two of the guys who are nominated for Best Supporting Actor, Jeff Bridges and Michael Shannon, they're both playing the same role. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. That sort was of what the I old said. gritty police chiefs. They're both playing sort of small town uh, chiefs who've seen better days and are feeling a bit grizzled and depressed with the system, blah, blah, blah. So I think that's really odd. I don't get it. I don't even think Jeff Bridges should have been there. I think it should have been uh, Ben Foster. Or even Chris Pine. I thought they were both... But he's, both not, those... he's not a supporting actor. Is he not a supporting he's actor? He's the lead, surely, Chris Pine. Well, I don't know. It's kind of an ensemble, isn't it? Mm, I'd say he's the lead and then Foster... But I thought those Steve. two were better than Jeff Bridges. I think that's it, fair to I, say. I agree with you, Phil, yeah. A note on the animated film category. Kubo and the Two Strings is there, as is Moana's Utopia, and then The Red Turtle and My Life as a Zucchini. <laughs> we haven't seen those two, sadly. The Red Turtle, I think, is a Studio Ghibli film, I think. Uh, lots of people are saying Your Name, that anime film that yes. was uh, breaking the box office in Japan or something. I think it's, it's uh, done better than Spirited Away now. Is more commercially successful, you mean? Yeah. Well, it hasn't managed to get that attention from the Academy. Interesting. Even though Spirited Away did. So maybe maybe just anime isn't a Western audience's sort of thing. It's possibly slightly falling out of favour, yeah. But what what about those things? Would you, Out of those three, who's saying they'll win it? But Kubo, Moana and Zootopia, which do you think would take I it? I would like Kubo to win because it's uh, a different sort of film. I have a feeling Zootopia will win it. Why do you think that? You've said this to me already. I'm confused. I think it ties in well with what the Academy thinks animation is for and is about. Okay. And I think animation, they they don't really see it as serious filmmaking. So any film which has got cuddly cam- animals talking, I think they think of that as an animation film. And if they like that film, and lots of people really like Zootropolis or Zootopia, whatever it is, I just think I could think voters will go for it. It's funny, isn't it? Because we enjoyed Zootopia. I liked how original the story was. I think Moana, in some ways, is a better made movie, and Kubo just represented amazing achievements in animation, didn't it? But weak story, perhaps. Mm, it's going to be an interesting category. I'm quite in- looking forward to seeing which one will win on that, that area. And what about directing film? Dennis Villeneuve for Arrival, he's in there. Hacksaw Ridge, Mel Gibson's made it back. Uh, La La Land, Damien Chazelle... Manchester by the Sea and Moonlight, which we haven't seen yet, of course. Who gets your pick? Maybe we should do some predictions. Well, are we going to do this? Are we going to get listeners involved as well and, and put your your top picks for the... I don't think every single category, but just the major ones. Yeah. Send in your thoughts and, and we'll see how a little competition. It'd be, yeah, it'll be interesting to see who gets it right and how obvious the category is. Well, maybe we will announce who we think closer to the day. Who we so you think don't want to do win. it now? I don't think we should do it now. Okay. But I think... I would not be surprised if Damien Chazelle wins. I think well, La La Land. <laughs> no, 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 no. But as in just on that one category, I think Damien Chazelle will win it because Whiplash, he directed it really well. And then La La Land, I think, I think if it doesn't win, that would be a real shock. It's not the best directed film, but anyway, yeah, okay. Would you be really upset if La La Land did become the most Oscared film ever or something like that? It's tough because the amount of press there has been about it means it's very hard to hold any kind of neutral opinion about the film, which is a bit annoying. You know already I don't like it when that happens because it stops being about the film, being judged on its own terms. Because it's only about... It's, it's got this whole storm of things. Momentum and things like that, yeah. So, and I, you know, I don't particularly trust myself to know how to navigate through all that storm to assess my proper feelings on the matter. But generally, I think it won too many Golden Globes and I don't want it to win in Best Actress or Best Actor category, for example. You're that certain they shouldn't win that? No, I don't think so. I think it's such a specific thing that they were made to do that it's not really comparable with other performances. And while I thought they were great and charming, they were kind of playing themselves a little bit, in my opinion. 
It is interesting. I think there's probably quite a small contingent of people who just didn't get the film and they feel almost a little bit embarrassed about that or they don't want to admit that they just didn't get it, they didn't like it because everyone else is going nuts for it. And do you think maybe that is quite justified if he didn't get it? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you already pointed out to me when I left the film with you and we were strolling down in London, I was telling you all the things I didn't like. <laughs> I certainly didn't think it was a perfect film where other people said... But I really enjoyed it. And it, but it took me a while to realise that I enjoyed it. So it's, a, it's an interesting one because, you know, we had that section about expectations. Yeah. I do think La La Land is one of those films which really illustrates how expectations can really affect a film. Because I know for a fact, I saw this with some of my friends again when it was released uh, publicly. Some of my friends were just adamant that it was going to be the best film ever because of all the hype around really? it. And I actively said to them, look, it's not that good of a film. It's a good film, but it's not that good. And I slightly was overhammering, like overplaying my card about how I didn't think it was that good so that they would at least, they would go in Put a bit on a level more neutral. Field. And then they still loved it. They did love it afterwards, but they were, some of them said they were grateful to have that little bit of a, a lower expectation it's interesting and listeners we've not had that much correspondence yet i think for a lot of people the beginning of the year it's not an easy time to go and see loads and loads of films we're getting back into the swing of things but really looking forward to hearing what your thoughts are on la la land so if you've seen it do get in touch and generally get in touch on the oscars we'd like to know what you think about the nominations uh, really interesting to see which way it'll go and look forward to our sort of oscars roundup i guess and also our rewards. Yes, and if you want to send in uh, predictions for who you think is going to win, just start sending those in now, I think, yeah. Yeah, that'd be interesting. There we go. All right. Oscars. Phil, Laurie. Yes. Can I ask you for your opinions on M. Night Shyamalan? You certainly can. Phil, do you want to go first? Uh, M. Night Shyamalan. Hi, ben- Benedict, by the way. Hi, Benedict. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I think he is slightly underrated and also overrated at the same time. He's a very weird one because... He he can make good films. He has made good films, but for whatever reason, he just can't seem to find a hit these days. So I don't know what I feel about him. I still think my favourite joke about him was your joke about The Last Airbender. It's more of a cutting, horrible thing to say than a joke. <laughs> yeah, but what, what was the twist in Last Airbender, Laurie? Oh, uh, the twist was that it was rubbish. <laughs> yeah, which It I, really was Very rubbish. good. <laughs> yeah. Laurie, what's your thoughts? I think he's an interesting guy, isn't he? The Sixth Sense was a big phenomenon and he knew his way around a twist and some supernaturally stuff. Good storyteller guy. Maybe the money went to his head and he started tailing off drastically. I think everyone saw that coming with The Village, which was just a bit odd. And then The Happening, which was really odd. The last airbender, as we say, was rubbish. He's just done The Visit, I think, hasn't he? Yep. Uh, And then The Lady in the Water, which everyone hated. And it had a character in it who is a film critic who turns out to be awful. It's weirdly enough. Mm. (laughs) Uh, So I don't know. I think I feel like he you, you get to see a lot more of him in his films than other filmmakers because of the way that they've dipped and risen in quality. So maybe the guy's feeling good and maybe this is a good film, the one we're about to review. Yeah, and I think because this split, which we're about to review, uh, has been hailed as a kind of return to form. And I think that might be true. Really? And you think it's because he's doing better and feeling better in himself? He's, in, yeah, I don't know. I think... Well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about why. I'll talk about why I think that. Uh, so in Split, we have Anya Taylor-Joy. You might remember if you saw The Witch... Or if you were aware of the witch. <laughs> that was a long pause there, Laurie. We, neither of us have any idea. No, I know exactly the film you're talking yeah. about. And so I've seen some clips. Yes. Yeah. And she was the lead in that and she was wonderful. Okay. A lot of people rate that really highly. Really terrific. Yeah, no. Yeah, very, very good film. And she plays Casey, who's kind of a class outcast. And she is very kindly invited to one of her classmates' birthday parties. 
At the end of the party, when it becomes clear that nobody is coming to pick her up, the host of the party's father is like, come on, I'll give you a lift home. Let's get in the car. So then in the car, we have these two young girls and one of their dads. And at this point, rather than the dad getting into the driver's seat, James McAvoy does. And he takes them to an underground basement-y prison with beds and with a bathroom. So we're not talking horrifying levels, but they are locked up. So they've been abducted. They have, yeah. But in a weird way, it's sort of mysterious. You've not told us what happened to the dad in this case. No, we don't really find out what happens to the dad. He just does not get in the car. To make matters stranger, James McAvoy's character has dissociative identity disorder. Right. Or DID or multiple personality disorder. So these girls never know which personality is going to come to the door and speak to them. So it could be Hedwig, who's a very innocent, kind of sweet, but in a very creepy way, nine-year-old boy, who we are about to hear in this clip. He talks about this mysterious 24th personality who is kind of coming and represents some kind of danger on the horizon. Scary stuff. Let's hear the clip. My name's Hedwig. I have red socks. He's on the move. What? He's on the move. Someone's coming for you. And you're not going to like it. You guys make noises in your sleep. Tell us. I'm not supposed to say. (laughs) But he's done awful things to people and he'll do awful things to you. That's a creepy voice, that is. It is incredibly creepy. It, you know, reminds me of, there in uh, Live By Night, there's a Ku Klux Klan, a Ku Klux Klan uh, member who sounds exactly like that. And even really? looks like James McAvoy does in the film, yeah. And a, a child, or...? No, no, no he's, he's playing an intimidatingly childlike guy who's okay, very violent and awful, yeah. Is this a film which is constantly trying to make you feel uncomfortable because you're kind of waiting for something to break, something to snap in one of these characters? I think that is very much the case. Did either of you see 10 Cloverfield Lane by any chance? No, that was on my watch list. I really wanted to. I've heard very good things about John Goodman's character and yeah. that, that similar sort of feeling about is he, is he nasty or is he nice? Is he, what's going on with him? Yeah. And this struck me as very similar in the sense that the setup is an abduction, but the scenario of the abduction is not a simple just kind of somebody wants to lock you up. There is some kind of mystery element. So in 10 Cloverfield Lane, John Goodman's character was saying... I locked you up down here because out there in the real world at ground level is dangerous. And we kind of don't know whether that is the case or whether he's just making up and he's totally crazy. This is the same here in that they're talking about this kind of mysterious 24th personality Ah. that's about to break out. And we don't know, is that real? Is that some kind of made up fabrication? So I think the ties between those two films are actually very, very close. And they're both very creepy and very weird, and will play all sorts of tricks on the audience. That's really clever. You know, it's completely different from what I had sort of absorbed with a bit of buzz when listening out for this film. Because I thought, maybe maybe I'm completely wrong here, Benedict, I thought there was some kind of superhero element to this. Well, that's very interesting, because scenes in the bunker are intercut with flashbacks to Casey's childhood. Okay, yeah. And she's out hunting with her father. And they're in the woods and they're hunting wild animals and that kind of thing. Very young. This is when she's about four or so. Mm. And it's also intercut with scenes with James McAvoy's character, Kevin. As a younger guy? No. Okay. (laughs) While this stuff is going on, 
visiting his uh, very understanding and kind of field-leading psychiatrist. Right. Because she's one of the few in her field that actually believes that this disassociative identity disorder actually exists. And she starts to suggest that maybe this kind of problem that he has is not really a problem. It is a more kind of ultimate version of being a human. Oh, right. An evolutionary stage. An evolutionary stage. How about that? I have to say that doesn't really strike me as a sort of a horror sort of idea or concept. This seems much more sort of psychological thriller and mystery and M. Night Shyamalan with a bit of a twist, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right about that. This is a 15 rated film, but... 10 Cloverfield Lane, which was just a 12A, I found much more intense. And this is not a negative to this film. The problem with this film is that it's almost too fun okay. and well-made and thrilling to actually be properly scary. Well, so that, that was going to be my major question because Shyamalan has form for creepy superhero alternative takes with Unbreakable, which we've already discussed on the show, that as a 12 completely freaked me out. Out of my mind, it was terrifying. He's a master of pushing the age limit right to its limits. Is this Shyamalan back on form? Does the camera work work? Does he get the good performances? Does he keep the creepiness? Does he do his shyamalan twisty stuff? All very interesting questions. Performance, wonderful. Yeah. I think James McAvoy, I don't know whether you're getting it from that clip, but he totally transforms himself for every single personality we meet. His accents are great. His, um, because you see the struggle within these characters as they're kind of fighting for control over oh, wow. his body. And I think he is wonderful. Like, to me, Oscar-worthy wonderful. Seriously, that good? In this film? Yeah. Wow, really? I mean, it would never get nominated because it's not the type of... It's not the right film for that sort of thing. But you're saying it's top caliber, an actor going right to the limit of what is capable. Sort of an elastic performance, like all tied to one thing. And yet they're, you know, super extended, that kind of thing. Yeah, totally. It's it's an acting masterclass. It's such a perfect role that was created for him. I have to admit, I'm really pleased to hear that because McAvoy always struck me as someone with a bit more to give. And for whatever reason, I feel that he's been shoehorned in some fairly bland roles. I think Hollywood have started to think of him as the new Hugh Grant recently. Okay, yeah. uh, I mean, you think about Atonement and then even in the X-Men, he doesn't, he plays uh, Xavier like a sort of foppish university guy. He doesn't, you know, he's not exactly Patrick Stewart and he's always had a bit of a wildness to him, hasn't he? Yeah. I think about his roots in Shameless and stuff. Like, this is cool. I'm glad he's doing it. This wildness is like McAvoy untapped. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think M. Night Shyamalan's first pick for this character was Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, really? To give you some kind of vibe too of creepy, who he was man. going for. <laughs> Way too creepy. But I think I, can't, I cannot see anybody else in this role other than James McAvoy. He is perfect. Because it becomes very, very fun to watch. To watch an actor do his thing. And the direction, as you bring up, I think mm. Shyamalan, particularly in that abduction scene that I was talking about in the car, is so playfully intelligently directed like Hitchcockian playing with audience expectation of like what we think a certain certain camera angle means when it's in fact it's totally different and that's somebody's point of view that kind of thing and he leads the eye beautifully in some of these scenes and it's shot by the guy who shot It Follows oh yeah 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 which is a very I think striking visually and this is working in totally different spaces it's not open suburban streets it's kind of down and dingy corridors but there are these amazing long tracking shots with characters running that just 
look really amazing That's on the crazy, big screen. Uh, some of our listeners are going to be very glad to hear you say it follows because we used to have people emailing in saying, have you seen this? It's great. It's great. It's yeah. great. You have seen it. I have. You? And it is great. <laughs> Way to go. As well, so I'm really pleased to hear that. And I still would throw this in Shyamalan's court, even though obviously an editor would be involved in a screenplay writer as well. But in terms of the overall pacing of the story, one thing that you love is the way that it unfolds, the way that you've set it up for us, Benedict. There are so many questions I've got and I want to know, does it succeed is stuff done at the right time, at the right pace? Is it satisfying? I think it definitely is. In a way, it feels a little long. Okay. I think it's two hours minus a couple of minutes. Um, and I think, not that it feels uh, like it sags at any point, but I do think there is maybe a tighter edit of this film. Right. And also, another thing with the pacing, of course, when you think about Shyamalan films, a massive part of the pacing is like, when do you drop the twist? Exactly. That's what, exactly what I mean. Yeah. He's been a master of that. He has. And this is very different. He approaches it in a very different way. There is a twisty element there, but it is nothing on the level of a sixth sense. Okay. And it's far more subtle and in a way playful. Because I think, as we were talking about earlier, I think the thing that really sets Shyamalan apart now that's given him some kind of freedom is he's working on very low budgets Yeah, with Blumhouse. I think this is a $10 million movie. Re- Seriously? Yeah. You've got McAvoy for under $10 million. Yeah, and it means that he's given entire, like he's given final cut. He can do absolutely whatever he wants to. And I think that maybe he's also moved away from that thing of like everybody expecting a twist in every, all of his films. This is like, I've got this film and then I've got a little kicker. I have to end. admit, a little sweetener at the end. To yeah, kind of a little sweetener at the it end. It does sound totally fascinating, Benedict. You've succeeded. I'm. I want to see it now. <laughs> it wasn't particularly on my list. When you say you want to see it, are you just going to Wikipedia the plot after? No, this? no, I won't do that. No, do I don't not think do so. that. Do not do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Phil gets very annoyed with me for doing this, and he's quite right too. But, you know, I just I have to keep up, don't I? Blah, 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 blah. One thing that someone made me laugh about when we were chatting is one of the other markers for Shyamalan's decline that we observed was the fact that in Signs, which a lot of people rate very highly for the first half and not at all for its second half, Shyamalan is in that film, of course. Mm-hmm. Is he in this film? He is. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, really? <laughs> he is. Uh, a lot of people won't think of that as a good thing. Very small role. Uh, it sticks out. But it oh. is a single scene, and he's in no way vital. But it is a little, it's a little jarring. What is, what is with direct, directors doing this? That's I always weird, think it's it? just the most bizarre thing. Why would you, like, hamper your own movie with your own performance? Maybe it's a sort of Stan Lee thing. In a way, to me, it comes across as possibly a bit Hitchcockian. Okay. Because, uh, and it's not, they're, they're not as hidden. It's not what like Hitchcock would kind of put himself, wouldn't he, in the corner of the frame or whatever. Right. And you'd have to... You might get lucky and see him. Like it's, Peter more, it's more obvious than that. Do you get the sense that this maybe is going to get overlooked because of M. Night Shyamalan? This film? Yeah. Uh, I really hope not, but I think that could, could possibly be true. Because, I mean, audiences are going to be like, well, I saw the lady in the water. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think that, that, that the guy who made that film could ever make something good. Could ever make something good again. I think for me, the thing which is slightly distracting from the film is, and I haven't seen it, but you have perked my interest, is just it feels like quite a campy concept. You know, here's a guy, he's got 24 personalities, are all of them nice or whatever? I mean, too, almost funny. Yeah, and but maybe that's kind of all the point. Maybe that's what he's sort of building it all around is this sort of silliness but serious and also creepy and dark and and kind of letting it be what it is rather than trying to make it a super serious intense thoughtful production is that right i would say so and that that kind of gets him into deep water a little bit because in the creation of this character and also in the creation of casey in her backstory there are some quite dark troubling ideas that he is using 
to suggest this is why this character acts in this way as fuel sort of thing but actually it's quite serious so and it is they are very serious issues treated reasonably seriously but not quite seriously enough because you always have the fun in in a way and i I, there have been people that have said this film has a negative portrayal of mental illness and i can see that it didn't offend me personally but i can see why somebody would come out of it thinking that before you give us the grade can you give us your special horror score benedict and explain i can what it is. uh so so this is something that we've decided to call the super bailey booze okay and this <laughs> and is not b double o z e just to be really clear. yeah this is b although the b double o z e if we have a merchandise super bailey booze. <laughs> that's worth thinking about uh yes go ahead benedict uh so this is a score out of 10 and this is not uh, an issue of quality this is purely an issue of whether non-horror fans will be able to enjoy this film okay yeah okay. interesting and Sounds how does good. it work what's one what's ten so ten is something like uh the exorcist or something that non-horror fans are just not going to be able to deal with it okay. is going to freak them out even if it's a wonderful film they will not be able to handle it and a one is something that might be mildly horror like but is in a way pretty much totally access- accessible anyone can see that film yeah and I think this would probably fall on about the three level. On oh, three? Okay. Yeah. I thought you said it was going to be a five. No, no, no. I think a couple of points. I, th- I think with, with a film that was scored five, I think I would say maybe think twice about seeing this if you're not sure about this kind of thing. Split, I would say, unless you're incredibly sensitive to this material, go for it because I think you will find some value in it. There That's you go. Me. There you go. Three. And quite surprising because the, the, all the, uh, the trailers and everything like that have seemed to really emphasise the scary factor of it. But anyway, that, I'll let audiences make up their own mind. You've got the Super Bailey booze score. <laughs> so make your own judgement. How about the grade? I think I'm going to go with an A-. minus. Wow, really? That is a big grade. I wasn't prepared for that. That is a high score. Are you sure? I am sure. This is a, No take-backsies. <laughs> in the time since watching this, I think it has grown... In my mind, I had a great experience in the theatre and it has stuck with me just how fun and well-crafted this film is. And unlike anything on the market right now, I can safely say that. that? You won't see many films like Split this year. Well, that is comeback territory for Shyamalan then. That sounds great for the guy's career. Yep, I would say so. Well, I admit, Benedict, you've surprised me in much the way the film seemed like it surprised you. That's good news. I'm going to put it on my watching list, not my Wikipedia list. (laughs) Uh, Any bonus features for us? Uh, I thought the credits were really interesting. I like it when films, instead of just the scrolling white text against a black background, we have that, but then behind it are 24 individual frames showing the same credits. Okay. So you have the main credits rolling and then you have small versions rolling all over the screen. Does that mean that there's going to be some production assistant who's really annoyed because it's impossible to read his name? Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) But you enjoyed it. At least least, least you enjoyed it. I thought it was a nice touch, that kind of thing of... That's obviously obviously somebody being playful. That's Simon. I'm being like, oh hey, why don't we do that? Mix too? up a bit. Have That's a bit of fun, fun, isn't it? Creativity. It really does sound like working with small budgets and away from the big stuff, the big expectations. He's doing this guy a world of good. It is indeed. I think I think this is his perfect level. There More of the same, please. Split. Check it out. Thank you very much, Benedict, for coming in horror correspondent style. No problem. Thank you. <laughs> he did a little salute there. Good stuff. <laughs> Phil, I'd like us to try something different today. What's this? I'm nervous about it, but here we go. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm nervous. You look nervous. I, I know I do, don't I? That's embarrassing. I would like to review for you Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage, as two people. <laughs> is this Split? Are you trying to take James out, McAvoy? No, this is before Split came in. No, I'm just thinking I'd like to review it as me, a person who saw this film. 
and also me as someone who is in this film. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> yeah. This is such a bad idea, isn't it? Uh, but I'm not going to bring in me who's in this film <laughs> until a little bit later. Uh, <laughs> listeners, Triple X, Return of Xander Cage, stars Vin Diesel as an extreme sports guy who's so extreme and awesome that Samuel L. Jackson and the Triple X team recruited him in the past to basically be a kind of awesome secret agent, saving the world superhero style, secret society style. It's funny, isn't it? Because Samuel L. Jackson is the recruiter for the Avengers. He's also the recruiter for the Triple X team in this film. And that's how it opens. It opens with Samuel L. Jackson meeting. Well, see, who can you guess, Phil, who Samuel L. Jackson might meet? They, you know, really extreme sports people or just amazing sports megastars get recruited to join this crime fighting team. Have a guess. Go on. I, I hopefully not Tony Hawk or something not like that. Not Tony Hawk. That is a good guess. He's a bit old now. Try, try not so much, you know, extreme sports. Just think big sports. Oh, it's not like some quarterback or, or yeah. David Beckham. It's Neymar Junior film. <laughs> so the film opens. I have oh, to say, no. fantastically, what? <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson meeting Neymar Junior and saying, "I recruit the best guys," and he gives this kind of insane, almost Pulp Fiction esque, long spiel about the way that he peacekeeps in the world, trying to convince Neymar to join his team. Neymar's not that interested. Phil, great bit of acting from Neymar Junior. I'm sure you could just imagine it. Does he just say no? He says almost nothing at all. He talks Portuguese or something, yeah. But then at some point, in, uh, as Samuel L. Jackson goes to leave, because Neymar's like, I'm not interested, uh, a robber comes in with a shotgun and tries to steal the money from the counter of this restaurant. And uh, Samuel L. Jackson's got his hands up and acting all scared. So what does Neymar do in this situation? He doesn't kick a football, that's something. Not a football man. He kicks one of those metallic uh, paper towel dispensers. He flips <laughs> it up, <laughs> like does a free kick into the robber's head, knocks him out. Now tell me that that is not fantastic. No, I'm not going to say that's fantastic. This is the same... I don't get you, man. You're crazy. What You're are you crazy. About? You don't make no sense whatsoever. That is brilliant. That is fantastic. I love <laughs> these rubbish movies. I think that's an awesome opening to a film. I think it's just brilliant. Like, not only that, when they introduce Neymar and Samuel L. Jackson, they have a freeze frame and they give a little fact file about them. <laughs> you know, and that happens all the way through the film. Like, there's one character who appears, it's like, boom, favorite game, Call of Duty. Mr. Snowflake. He loves yeah, exactly. ice. Almost immediately after that, after something happens to end that scene, uh, you then get Donnie Yen. Uh, and a team uh, of criminals basically free jumping off one skyscraper to land through the skylight of another skyscraper and then doing kung fu and flips in a boardroom and taking out a load of people is donnie and the antagonist donnie well sort of yeah he is and it's brilliant it's great fun stupid kung fu action i just literally i sat in my seat thinking oh i'm having such a good time i'm so what? glad to be here i was on my own in the cinema as well which i think helped and i was just chuckling out loud at different points i love donnie yen phil i think he's brilliant on the screen and it just it just made me feel so happy to see such a silly film uh being faithfully reproduced on the screen very next scene uh, there's a reason i'm doing it this way is xander cage Vin Diesel, who's approaching 50, by the way, climbing up. in the cheeks, doesn't he? Uh, well, I don't know, not necessarily in this film, but he's climbing up a communications tower somewhere in Brazil with all the satellite dishes on the top of the mountain. And he's got sort of skis or something in his hand. And this is a sunny day. There's no snow anywhere. But he's got some skis with him. And he sort of takes a breath and looks down. And um, he decides what he should probably do is attach his skis to his feet and jump off a communications tower to ski down the mountain. And so it's a snow-covered mountain. No, Phil, it's not, as I <laughs> attempted to set up just then. No, he just... I think they call it jungle jibbing or something, going <laughs> through the forest. And that is the clip that we've been given. That's the only clip available. Enjoy all the riveting dialogue, listeners. Here we go. <laughs> 
Yeah, did you enjoy all that dialogue, Phil? <laughs> now, listen, there's, there's a reason why I've set it up in so much detail there and played that clip, even though it was the only clip available. Because that is what you want from this film. When the film is not doing that, it's borderline unwatchable in places. I mean, if Donnie Yen is not on the screen, then you can more or less get up and go to the toilets <laughs> and then come back. Either Donnie Yen's in shot or it's an action sequence. Everything else in between is awful, stupid, silly, uh, incredibly sexist in places. Uh, Like, I I have to... I just don't get it. Uh, There's one scene where Vin Diesel wants some help from someone and um, in order to get their help, she says to him, essentially, you're just going to have to sleep with all my girlfriends. Uh, Paul Vin Diesel, you're going to have to go and do that. And all the girlfriends come in and he has to sleep with them all. You don't see that scene? But that's what's, that's what's there. And I'm not sugarcoating it because that is how it appears in the film. What? And it's cringeworthy. It's awful. Vin Diesel, do you remember we saw a film, Phil, starring Meg Ryan? And sorry, Mum, if you're listening, you might be about to remember this. That was the called one where... My Mum's yeah. New Boyfriend. Yeah. I think it's called something different in America. My Mum's Dating a Spy or something like that. Yeah, Antonio Banderas and Meg Ryan star. And Meg Ryan is a mum whose daughter goes away to college. Uh, and Meg Ryan is fat at that point. And when the daughter comes back from college, Meg Ryan is slim down and she's going out with this new guy who turns out to be a spy the reason i bring up that film is that we found it unbearable to watch because it was like meg ryan's agent had co-written the script because characters are in it who say things like how come you're so look so amazing for your age or uh a guy turns up at a shootout and they're like, who are you with? And said, like, oh, no one. I just think she's hot. And like all through the film, there are scenes that seem to be written purely to say how attractive Meg Ryan is uh, in her older years. And you're saying this is the same in, <laughs> in Vin Diesel. <laughs> yeah. So like there are just scenes where we're supposed to think Vin Diesel is this awesome, really hot, super cool dude. And I'm just there thinking, seriously, What are man, you talking about? Get, get over it. Stop this. He's at a point in his career where it'd be much better if he was playing someone who's really awesome and cool, but a bit creaky. And like, he used to be that guy. But this film, yeah, they portray him as like super... And that is awful. Midlife crisis, Oh, it's just film. terrible, terrible, terrible. But you know what? It doesn't take away from the fun of the action and Donnie Yen. And it's at this point, Phil, uh, where I feel that like I should switch characters. Oh, okay, who, who, who do we have here then? Yeah, Phil, my man. Hey, what's up, dude? Hello? What, what, what was your name, stranger? I'm still Laurie, man. I'm just in this film. <laughs> yeah. It's all about reviewing the films. It's about getting the emails. And it's looking dope doing it. Am I right, man? Yeah? Um, yeah, I can totally see that. What's this film Whoa, about? Johnny, turn up the heat, my brother. What's this film about, Laurie? This film is about my main man, Xander Cage. Is there a cooler dude on the planet, man? Triple X, bro. They all look after themselves. In this film, he ain't got no respect for the suits. He ain't got no respect for the man. 
he ain't got no respect for anybody. He doesn't care what you think about him. He's too busy knowing who he is. Do you hear me? I, oh, I feel you, bro. I feel yeah. you like crazy. Um, why should somebody go see this movie? <laughs> why shouldn't you go see this film, man? You need to start taking all that sort of stuff that the corporates throw out your way. You just need to get back to some cool, dope-ass stunts, my brother. <laughs> Keep it up, man. Don't ruin the illusion. I don't care about any of that politics, my man. I don't care about any of those social issues. I just want to see some cool guys doing some stunts, having some fun, and having a laugh doing it. Meeting some ladies, picking up some chicks, and shooting some cool kick-ass guns. Am I right? <laughs> yep, okay. What's... Well, how hey, good... Johnny, get my skateboard, man! <laughs> How good is this film then? What's it? What's it? Another film that it's as good as? <laughs> Woo! Kickflip. What? <laughs> right on. Well, man, I can't call this the Citizen Kane of action films because that was already done with Fast and Furious. Am I right? If you're a Fast and Furious fan, you ain't seen nothing half as furious as this. What's so furious in this movie then? Uh, he's had to go away for a minute. Laurie's back. Just for, uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Laurie, where have you gone? All right. Hi, Phil. He's doing a kickflip down the Russian again. This is really hard work. What's the most furious thing in this movie? That was oh, it. Right, I, thought, yeah. I thought other Laurie might be more good at this. Gosh, yeah, he probably would be. Um, the most furious thing it's definitely the action donnie yen's good it has an unrestrained sense of fun and it you know what it had something in it that i really genuinely quite liked uh the final line of the film is vin diesel saying to a lady character he says oh I still don't know there's no such thing as good guys because he's still in his everyone loves me thing mm. uh, and she says it's okay to be a little bit bad and I have to tell you, Phil, that single line there represents so much more good-heartedness and kindness and positivity than loads of films I've seen in the last year that are ostensibly life-affirming. People describe them as that. I think that is a life-affirming message. The whole point of this film is to speak up for the outsider, for the person who feels on the edge. It's kind of a, yeah, no one cares about you. Everyone thinks that skateboarding is lame, especially when you're a man as old as Vin Diesel. <laughs> he does skateboard down a mountain, high-fiving drivers and stuff. It's quite remarkable. Mm, no. I just think that's quite a nice message. It's a stupid film. But can you deny that? That's good, isn't it? Who doesn't want to hear that? It's okay to be a little bit bad. No one's perfect, man. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, I, you haven't really sold it to me, but I want to hear your grade on it, and then I'll ask Laurie, the bro, what his grade is. Turn that back up, yo! Woohoo! Hey, 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 hey! That's the wrong CD, man. No, I told you never play that CD. Never stay. Yeah, that's more like it. The guy I'm talking to there, Phil, he's actually a DJ. Uh, because in this DJ. film, yeah, DJ. In this film, one of the characters, as Vin Diesel sets up his amazing team, he gets the most awesome team you could ever imagine. Eat your heart out, Suicide Squad. We've got a Scottish crazy-ass stunt driver. We've got a hard-edged lady sniper gal who's more into chicks than dudes. That's how that goes. And a DJ, man. A DJ joins the team so that he can play some sick beats, apparently. While we're doing the action, he gets his laptop out and he puts on a sick beat and we go to town. That's why you got a sick beat on your review as well. Yeah, what's, yeah, yeah. What's the grade, Laurie? Well, Phil, how can you give this film anything but a C? <laughs> uh, I think this film <laughs> deserves uh, a C. I think it's just really, it's, it's really genuinely awful and, and uh, I think actually offensive in places. I think you know, that's why but I... you kind of loved it. I, I, this is such an up and down, like much like a guy on a vert ramp on a skateboard. Yeah. I well, can't tell. You love it and hate it. I think th I, 
the action is pretty good and it, it's unrestrained and it's fun and it as i said it's got this little bit of badness to it which is kind of a missing i think like you know deadpool wants to present itself as all this anti-establishment and stuff this is more this feels more authentic than deadpool did to me uh even though it's not r-rated or anything like that it's just guys who don't they just don't seem to care that much they just want to do the action and make Let's a, have a bit of fun but it, it is interesting and that's why i specifically mentioned that the the girl character the sniper who joins his team is portrayed as a lesbian in it because it's really weird the way that this film takes care to represent minorities like it's a very diverse cast uh, which is really cool actually in a quite a naturally diverse cast it doesn't feel shoehorned or like anyone's meeting a quota it just you just believe these guys and then at the same time, they've got Vin Diesel doing these ludicrously sexist, genuinely sexist scenes. It just, it seems like an incongruity to me. I don't understand how those things can all exist side by side. And it's maybe, sort of, maybe they think if they kind of balance the scales, well, exactly. it's it'll just, all work out in the it's end. Nonsense. But at the same time, what I did think, and sorry, I will round this up, is that all the bad things you can say about this film, I think are all equally applicable to James Bond's back catalogue. And I think this film is far, far, far closer to James Bond than any James Bond fan would like to admit. But then you have to say, those are older films, they're made in a different time. I'm not talking just about the older films, Phil. Uh, No, I think, you know, putting Daniel Craig there and giving him some grit and a posh English voice and getting him to wear suits and being part of MI6 is as much of a near as anything else, isn't it? What's actually happening is a simple spy adventure story. That is what this is. Anyway, that, that, that's, my, that's my sort of big, you know, have a think about this. If you think this film is sort of degrading and terrible, and I, I agree that in some ways it is, I think you need to consider the James Bond franchise and think, well, actually, is this in some ways just being more honest about its bad elements than James Bond is? Don't you love it, listeners, when Laurie makes you think about a movie which really doesn't matter? <laughs> I had fun for some of it. There you go. Donnie Yen's brilliant pie. Laurie, actually, I forgot to say, any bonuses? Yeah, my man. <laughs> Shout out to my big girl, Tony Collette, for one of the weirdest bits of casting, the most satisfying bits of casting in the cinema this year. Is that Tony Collette is in The Mum in About a Boy? Brap, brap, brap. You bet it is, my brother. Respect. Okay, thank you, Laurie G. Bernard Face Cheese, is that your real name, man? Thanks for supporting us on Patreon, uh, Anne. Okay, let's race through some emails. Our episode's been long the last few weeks, haven't they, Phil? It's these films, man. There's lots to say about them. I think this time of year, there's just loads come out. There'll be loads again next week as well. So sorry, listeners, if you're getting feeling overdosed <laughs> on films. Uh, but here we go. Angeline got in touch to say, plus one to Phil for Manchester by the Sea. Hard Hooray! to imagine better cinema. Didn't mention the use of music, though, which she thought was exquisite. Any comments? Uh, yeah, I'm a bit... I'm not the most musical person. I notice it when it's bad. I don't really notice it when it's good. But, I think um, you notice good music. I don't know. I It wasn't the thing which stood out to me. It was more the performance. But I'm, I'm yeah, I completely agree. It was good music and it fit the film really well. There we go. Thanks very much, Angeline. Uh, listeners, let us know your thoughts on Manchester by the Sea. Uh, one here from Stephen on trilogies. That's a few weeks ago now. We've actually got somebody, somebody got something out of that. Or here maybe they didn't. Let's hear the well, email. Here you go. He says, totally get what Phil was saying about trilogies. Lord of the Rings is definitely the best, but it doesn't really count because Tolkien wrote one cohesive story. I'm pretty sure the editors forced him to make it a trilogy so the books were shorter. Hence, when it's put together as a trilogy, it works perfectly, but also hence why it doesn't count. Interesting, okay. I, th- I see what he's saying now, and that's more or less what we said about the film, wasn't it? The film itself was filmed 
as one complete whole and, and then, then divide it up and they, they actually made some interesting decisions about which bits yeah they moved around and they did it slightly differently from the books weirdly enough Stephen, that may just be the best way to do a trilogy and <laughs> take one story and split it into three expertly i mean essentially that is what a trilogy is really isn't it should be perhaps. it's the that's and that's what you were saying about the empire strikes back the middle bit being the the intense the bit where all the that, ideas yeah. are really present well, then he goes on, in fact, to comment on this. He says, whereas with a one-off film like Back to the Future, if the first one makes money, they want to cash in. If the second one's bad, they don't want to go out on a loss, so they revamp to finish on a high, which is what I was saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's my theory anyway, he says. Well, <laughs> well, also mine, so... He's agreeing with me. That's what I said. I said... <laughs> that's like... what I said. All oh, right. We right, all right. said it. Okay. We all said it. It's the... Well, it's mine is yours. Okay, related to that, but more for what we've been watching. After what Phil said in your Christmas episode, I wanted to watch The Santa Claus. And ended up watching all three. All three. The trilogy. <laughs> uh, they were being held captive by Sky. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually enjoyed all three. They kind of seem to quietly trail off as you go through the trilogy, which isn't a terrible way to bow out. I, yeah, it's nice when a film knows what it is and isn't trying too hard to, to make it the most incredible thing ever. Yeah. And Tim Allen's good, isn't he? Yeah, I'm so glad you saw that, Stephen. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I watched it again over Christmas and I found some of it quite challenging. <laughs> uh, not quite as I remembered it, but on the whole, it's very good. It's got a good heart to it. Okay, one here from Russell. Hey, Super Bailey Bros. Really enjoyed the contribution from your new horror correspondent. Well done, Benedict. My scariest moment in a cinema was not during a horror film, actually. It was a few years ago. Me and my brother were in Luxembourg. Very nice. With a free afternoon, so we found a cinema. There was only one English language film available and it was called The Dead Girl. <laughs> we never heard of the film but we bought tickets anyway and were directed up a huge staircase where there was not another person in sight this sounds like a horror movie I think like... that's where he's going yeah there was no one to check our tickets so we just walked into the cinema it was completely empty and silent we still knew nothing about what we were about to see except it was called The Dead Girl we chose two seats in the centre of the auditorium and waited in the near dark. No one else came. <laughs> I kept looking behind me in a slightly paranoid way and it was one of the few moments in my life when I felt like I'd walked into a horror film. <laughs> no one else showed up for that film and we watched it alone. Was it a good film? Well, he says, sorry to give you a disappointing ending, but the film wasn't even a horror film. Now a completely forgotten art house pick starring Tony Collette and the late Brittany Murphy, who presciently and unhappily was the dead girl of the title. Oh, no. Crikey. The film had both French and German subtitles, which took up quite a lot of space on the screen. I did say this story had a disappointing ending. <laughs> I'm just picturing like half the screen just being text in different colours and sort of these random blobs moving in the background. He does say, have you, ha have you had any scary experiences in cinemas which had nothing to do with the film? brackets insert price of popcorn joke here <laughs> oh, oh, oh zing yeah uh, have you phil i've had i think i've had a couple of moments which have slightly scared me i remember one time sitting next to somebody who i thought i knew but it wasn't the right person and oh, sort of no. that horrifying feeling when you you're sort of chatting with like, oh who's this person i had one of those moments but not nothing not really exactly more scary i mean i see where you come i haven't had a scary moment in a cinema although a situation very similar to what you described russell happened to me in portugal once actually i went to stay at a hotel for a wedding and i was late saying that i was going to go so i ended up at a hotel that was separate from all the other wedding guests that i knew Oh no, except one. And he and I stayed in his hotel. It was really odd. It was one of those same feelings where it just didn't feel like there was anyone there. And it also, it was kind of out of the way in the countryside as well. And that like, you could just hear sort of creaking and it was all concrete floors. It was very, very odd. I, I found that quite intimidating. I've had, I've had a sort of scary thing like that, a horror movie setup, but in real life. When I went to see the Grand Canyon, uh, I was with my girlfriend at the time and uh, we were just in this weird like, 
random part on the highway, this hotel complex. And um, we got we got some rooms and everything like that. And then immediately we were like, this is just so creepy. There's no other cars on this thing. And it was just like this one woman that behind the so desk. That's so weird, isn't it? And we were just like, should we just go? And so we just... Did you actually leave? We just checked out. We didn't stay there at all. <laughs> we just left. And we're like, no, thank you. Nope, 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 nope. It is uh, it's very odd when you find yourself completely isolated. So there you go, Russell. We've yet to have that in a cinema, but thank you for letting us know. Okay, a couple of tweets here from Alistair. He says, you guys are still talking about Rogue One. He's right. Yeah, we have almost every episode. Since. This is the first episode where I thought we were going to talk about it. <laughs> so thank you, Alistair. Well, he does move swiftly on and says, two of the best films in the last few years must be Steve Jobs and Whiplash. I'm surprised uh, uh, Steve Jobs made Those are list. bold choices. Yeah. Laurie, in fact... I know for a fact that you got this DVD, didn't you, for yeah, Christmas? Yeah, still got its cellophane wrap on it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, and not for Christmas. I bought it. I bought it in a sort of five for twenty pounds deal. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, he carries on another great film out end of last year. You may have missed it. Anthropoid, a great war film based on the Czech Resistance. Are you familiar with this? No, but it sounds You're right. intriguing. We did miss it. Something to watch. And you seem to rave about Jackie in your podcast this week. So would you highly recommend it? As I love my American history. It's not exactly a history piece, though. It's not a biopic, as I went to some trouble to say in a very over-enthusiastic manner. Impressive painting. <laughs> uh, but it is an um, incredible film. I'd love to know what you think, Alistair. Final one. At Super Betty Bros, quit what we've been watching recommendations. I'm going to add this here because he says, make sure you watch the majestical hashtag hunt for the Wilder people. It's currently on Netflix. Have you seen it? No, it's one of the ones I wanted to see, so I will check that out. But I thought I'd just mention that here because we will watch that, Nicholas. We won't do that this week on what we've been watching. We might do it next week. Listeners, if you've seen Hunt for the Will of People, tune in to what we've been watching to hear our thoughts. Yeah, do check out what we've been watching this week. And that is the end of emails. Nice and quick this week. Thanks very much for getting in touch, everyone. Remember, you can keep in touch. Superbabybros at gmail.com. <laughs> Well, the end of another four movie. <laughs> I can hear the weird baby bros. Are you still tired from doing the lorry bro? Oh yeah. I don't know how that went down, Phil. I'm slightly nervous about it. But there we are. <laughs> uh listeners, thanks so much uh, for tuning in to hear the review. Sorry there are so many films at the moment. I don't think you should apologize about that man at all. It has been quite fun and they've been very different. Lots of Oscar contenders. Still more of that to come. We'll try not to do quite so many film reviews each episode if we possibly can, but we do want to stay on top of it and give you guys our thoughts. Yes, and we'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Nice segue there. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Impressive. Professional. It'd be really great to hear what you make of these Oscar films. You know, we see these films and sometimes you might slightly worry that you've got it wrong. And it'd be great <laughs> to hear if somebody agrees with me out there, or, or, or us, sorry, I should say. Yes. But also, if you do disagree with us, we'd love to hear that as well. We love hearing different opinions on films rather than just our own. So do get in touch. Big or small, we love them all. Absolutely. I don't want that to become a catchphrase. It, is a catchphrase. it was an accident. It was an accident, <laughs> It's beautiful. So there you uh, go. Uh, next week we'll be doing Sing. I'll be reviewing Gold, Matthew McConaughey's new film, and there are there are quite a few out again, aren't there? Yeah, man. Oscar season, you can't escape it. It's true. Okay, so that's something to look out for. Do get in touch about your Super Bailey Broads uh, category suggestions and nominations, and check out Patreon.com/slash/SuperBaileyBros. Of course, if you want to support us. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening, and uh, yeah, do check out what we're watching. Have a great week. Speak to you soon. That's all for now. Bye. Phil, have you ever left something behind you at a restaurant or the cinema or a bus? Yeah, I have. I've left some stuff at the cinemas a couple of times. What do you do when you realise this?
uh, do the the pat down, the, you know, the, oh, where is it? Oh, look around. And then you look around in case it's fallen out. And then you yeah, think, yeah. then you replay your like a little movie in fast, like you're fast forwarding or rewinding it of you walking wherever you've been. Step by step. Trying to work out where it was the last time you found, like you have it in your hand. Horrible feeling. And then the phone call and they say, no, it's not there. And you start, recently this happened to me with a scarf in one of the screenings actually. And they said, no, nothing handing in. And I'm just thinking, has someone picked it up? Is someone wearing my scarf? Probably, yeah. Someone wearing Laurie Bailey's scarf. Uh, but actually, before that happens, something that happens to me is if I have lost something, I try and build in strategies to avoid that happening. And one of the things I've noticed myself doing a lot recently, especially now I have a baby, if I go to a coffee shop or a restaurant and my f- whole family are there, then we have a lot of things that come with us. It just has yeah, to be yeah. that way. Buggies and nappy bags, lot blah, blah, blah. stuff. Blah. Just stuff, yeah. And so when I get up to leave the restaurant... I'm always paranoid that I would have left one of these items behind. And I've noticed myself doing the most annoying sort of thing. Like, there's a certain look that you do the check whether I've left anything look. Are you familiar with this? No. So at a restaurant, for example, you can't just, you know, look at your seat. You need to look under the table. Sometimes you need to check under the chairs because these things can go... They creep around, don't yeah, they? They and find so, hidden places. But you don't want to make it obvious to everyone that what you're doing is checking. For some reason, it's embarrassing. I don't understand why. <laughs> it's a very human thing to happen, but it's embarrassing. So you sort of half bend over and half look. You're not doing this sort of weird bobbing thing. It's like you're kind of looking down, kind of up and down. Because you don't want to get on your hands and knees and crawl around. <laughs> you have to sort of bend at the waist and kind of bob up and down and like pull the chairs apart. And like you do this weird look over bend thing. Obviously, that's not That is true. Podcast, you have like. to do very odd looks. You just <laughs> contort your body in this weird way. And the net result, of course, is everyone's looking at you like, what is that guy doing? But it's because you don't want to do a proper look. You don't why? want to look like why, you're why, looking. Why? why are we like this? Why, we, why would we choose the more awkward and embarrassing thing than the obvious, you know, slightly humiliating thing? I don't get it. Just, just the way we are. It's like when you realise you're going the wrong direction on a street. Yeah, 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 you that's know. true. Oh, have you ever just managed to just completely turn around? Just yeah, many times. And just said, oh, no, I'm not going to pretend that I'm not going the wrong way or anything like that? It happens to be quite a lot in London because I'm still orientating myself to get to the screenings and things. So coming out of tube stations especially, I'm terrible uh, uh, identifying where I am and searching for street signs and things. It's just embarrassing. Useless. Especially Useless. London, that's one yeah. thing the Americans have got right. Grid system. 36 and 4th, or what, what is it they say? You do it. I don't know. 42nd. I'm here in Peritory and 2nd. Is that a thing? Boulevard Avenue and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, much easier. But there we go. I just wonder whether listeners have done that. The check whether you've got everything. It's just, yeah, it's embarrassing. Have you got everything though, Laurie? Yeah. Hold on a minute. Let me just check. Bob, 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 Bob. <laughs> so, right, so we, we are rolling. So, rolling, rolling. So, go when you're ready. Ready to go whenever. Uh, if it, well, it... The Oscar nominations have been announced. Yeah. Hooray. Oscars do you feel 20. Ex- <laughs> Let's do that again. The Oscars have been announced. Hooray. <laughs> I thought you were going to carry on. Uh, okay, you, let me, let me go it. again. The Oscars have been announced. Hooray. 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 <laughs> I thought that's what you wanted. <laughs> I'll give you the signal. Right, here we go. Oh, man. And like kind of, or like super sort of street music, and I go, yeah, what's up, my man? Like that kind of okay, thing. Okay, fine. All right, so you ready for this? 